Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Bears, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a special guest joining me for a chat. She's a former senior police officer who worked in the Leicestershire and Metropolitan Police Forces. She became one of only three female detective chief inspectors in the Met. Since retiring from the police, my guest today has been a script consultant on UK TV crime shows including The Bill, Life on Mars, Cracker, and Prime Suspect. The latter had its protagonist DCI Jane Tennyson, played by Dame Helen Mirren, inspired by the career of none other than my guest. Her first published book, The Real Prime Suspect, was released on August 25th, 2022. Please welcome to the show, Jackie Moulton. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And now, as I always do with my guests, before we get into your illustrious career if I do say so myself I'd like to ask you a bit of an off-topic icebreaker question just to get the mind and the the conversation flowing I think is the best way to put it so I thought about this yesterday if you could go back in time and witness one moment in history fly on the wall style you don't have to have any involvement in whatever you're watching just an observer at the time what moment do you think you would pick Uh, the release of Nelson Mandela Mm. For what reason? Uh, because it was about um, the, the start of um, apartheid being changed in South Africa, the courage, the tenacity, the bravery of that man, uh, its freedom of speech, its freedom of principles that we should all have. I can always remember that walk that he made, so it would be the freedom of Nelson Mandela. Forgive my naivete, but when was that? What year was that? Oh, God, I don't know. I can't remember. The 90s, the early 90s or something. Am I getting that wrong? Um, I think it happened Freedom Day, 1994. 
Okay. No, probably was before then. You'll have to Google. You have to Google it. We'll give it a Google afterwards. Let's say early nineties for the record. Yeah, yeah. It's a good answer though. I think if I had to Thank pick you. it, it would probably be something more sporty. Maybe the World Cup, nineteen sixty-six. Yeah, but that doesn't change. I mean, that's your choice, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't change the world. It doesn't change the world, absolutely not. However, we haven't won it since then. It was land breaking, groundbreaking. No, it's land breaking, but you haven't. But the <clears throat> but the women football have uh, oh, won significance. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that. So absolutely. when they were comparing the World Cup in 1966, and they compared it to the women in the Europeans uh, recently. I mean, they were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And I played, um, I was a great footballer and, and grew up playing football. In fact, I just joined a walking football team. Oh, nice. Yes, for women. And uh, I think my, my legs ached for about two days afterwards. But anyway, so when I was um, a kid, I grew up playing football. And the at my school, Linden Junior School in Leicester, they allowed me to play for their team, for the boys but opposing teams would come and the sportsmaster from their schools, these opposing teams always said, no, she can't play. We wouldn't let her, you know. So it was for me that those women playing football and journeys that they went on and journeys that I went on, it was just, you know, it was phenomenal match. The team spirit, I loved everything about it. In fact, I'm going to see them with a friend in October to England play America at Wembley. So that'd be great. Is that a qualifier or is that a friendly? No, I think that's a, it's a, isn't it something to do with the World Cup? I think they're playing the World Cup qualifiers at the moment. I believe. The qualifiers, they, yeah. Yeah. They won the other night, I think. I can't they remember did. who we're against. But yeah, it's interesting because that kind of ties in with your journey, I think, because, and we'll get there eventually, but just on the <laughs> football side, as much as people think there has been progression, say, from the 60s and 70s. There is still that side of our culture here that has a negative view on the women's football game, whether they're putting them down, comparing it to the men. Do you think it is as far ahead as it should be, or do you still think we're a little bit lacking in that regard? Well, I think they're still lacking. So when I went to that uh, walking football event, now I'm by far the oldest, and they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And they were saying, you know, they're much younger than me, and they were having the same, telling me the same stories that they couldn't play football uh, for their teams at school. And and even now, at this particular, I think they've been supportive of the women, but in terms of the, the cages that we play in, uh, the women have only been given one, you know, against many others that the men have. So you, you just have to, they just have to keep battling and battling on. I don't know what it is about the resentment or lack of progress about women and football. I don't know, because maybe the men just think this is our sport and you're encringing on it or whatever. Mm. I don't know what it is. I think that they, that win against Germany was significant and the support that they had and the crowds was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. So hopefully there's more progression with that first landmark step that they've made. Yeah. You did mention that you grew up in Leicester. Yes. And based on reading your book, were you the the youngest of three kids? Yes, Is that that's right. right. Yeah. Yes, so you had that's right. Older brother and sister. And your dad yeah. was in the in the newspaper industry. 
of Correct, some description. Yeah. What did he actually do? Uh, well, he was uh, the manager of the provincial newspaper in Leicester. There were two provincial newspapers in those days. I don't know how many cities have provincial newspapers now, but there were two, the Leicester Evening Mail and the Leicester Evening Mercury. Uh, sorry, the Leicester Mercury. Leicester Evening Mail, Leicester Mercury. The Leicester Mercury was the more dominant one, I think. He was manager of that of newspaper. They were all part of associated newspapers owned by Lord Harmsworth. And it was part of, I suppose, that kind of associated newspapers, Daily Mail, would be the national paper. But these, they owned many, many provincial newspapers throughout many cities in the country. So that was one of them. Cool. How did you find it at school, by the way? Because I was looking at what you went on to do from there sort of going to college and well I love school yeah I love school to be honest I really did love school yeah I loved it and um you know I, I was an outside kid really so I liked being outside and I liked the sports I liked English and history they were my favorite subjects I hated maths so I didn't quite get it really you know yeah, nowadays they teach it they teach it as a fun subject don't they and I'd love to be back at school where you had a teacher that taught it in this fun way. And I still don't understand. I, can, I could probably do that basic algebra, but the very complex algebra, you think, well, what, what is it? I don't kind of get it. And I was speaking to my friend's grandchildren the other day. They're whizzes at algebra, absolutely whiz. And it's like just left me miles behind. I don't even get it. And I've never got it, really. So I don't know what it's to do with critical thinking or what it's to do with, but it's going to have a value. Otherwise, I wouldn't teach it, would they? Well, yeah. I mean, that makes two of us. Maths was never my strongest. I mean, I didn't really have a strongest subject, but maths certainly wasn't up there at all. Like yourself, Mm. physical education, going outside when you used to do, what do you used to call when you used to go on a, a long run? outside cross country cross country called. running yeah yeah stuff like that. i mean i'm not a big runner but at least you're outside doing that i'm not a big runner we were talking about it the other day to some a friend of mine and uh, i'm not a runner but I, all ball sports anything with the ball i'm there any ball sport i absolutely loved it and when i when i went to that walking football you know just to have that ball under your foot and it all comes back and you feel like a kid again with the ball and I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. So yeah, ball sports. I'm not a great runner, and I, I you know I like team sports as well. What did you have aspirations of becoming? Was that ever a path you wanted to go down? Becoming some kind no. of athlete? No, 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 no. I never. It wasn't <laughs> even on the table. No, but it wasn't even on the table. I mean, people were professional footballers, weren't they? But no, I just enjoyed it. I'm not. Um, I'm not, I am a bit competitive, but I'm not competitive. When we were at school, what they used to do, they uh, would get, you know, two teams and, and I would often be the captain of the team and you'd have to pick your team and you'd go, right, I'll have Stuart, I'll have so-and-so. And you could see these poor kids that hated sport, hated it. And they were just dreading it because they'd always be left to the last, you know, that kind of, <laughs> it was... No one wants to be last, do they? No. So what I I made a point if if I picked two good players and then the third one, I'd pick them as my you know, and you could just see the relief on their faces and think, oh thank God. <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't bear to 
leave these people behind. So I always pick them for my team. And um, so it wasn't massively, massively, you know, I am competitive, but not it's not raging competitiveness. I just like to have a good game and team sport. And even if you lose, you know, you've had a really good game and you go, well done. And, you know, I'm that kind of person. I'm not, mm. I'm not win at all costs type of person. It sounds like you had some real leadership qualities even back in your school days. Where do you think that stems from? Um, well, my father, I don't know. My father used to talk about walking the walk in the morning at the newspaper that he'd go in and he'd take off his coat and then he'd walk the floor and he'd speak to everyone within his that newspaper, everyone that worked there, he would walk the floor. And um, I did that as a police officer. Every morning I'd go in and I'd just put my coat and I'd walk the floor. I'd go, you know, into what was called the charging room, but it was in the custody suite and the control room and all of those and speak to everyone, everyone, whoever was working. And you just kind of get a feel of what's going on. And I do believe that you make the best teams by bringing in a huge kind of range of skills that match each other. And I think that was what I was always seeking for, was to acknowledge the different skills. And that comes from being different. You know, if you're, you know, I'm products of the 50s, Stuart. So, and to be gay, you know, or, or to learn about your own sexuality back then was a massive crippler, crippler it was. You know, that this whole thing that you've got two heads and that mm. you didn't know anybody that was gay. Funny enough, the boy that I grew up with, Gareth, he's, he was gay. Turned out to be gay. And so, and I was always going to marry Gareth and Gareth was always going to marry me, but it's funny that, isn't it? Anyway, that's by the by. But I just feel about, about being fair. I don't know, really. Just pick your team. And I know you've got to have a good team whatever you do, but I think you can, it's about developing others and giving the others the opportunity to develop within a team. It's a bit like if you play golf or you play any sport, let's say golf, with much better golfers, you will raise your game. Your game will be raised and it's the same principle that if you bring in people with really good detectives, these younger ones, hopefully, hopefully, because you've identified the, the right reasons, they'll raise their game. And that's what it's all about. Do you think the reverse is true? If you're in, I can only compare it to football because that's what I play. If you play with players that are of a higher standard, as you mentioned, you will raise your game and ultimately become a better player. But if you're in a team of people who have bad attitudes, don't have as good technical skills, they aren't as good footballers, your game can actually lower. So do you think the reverse is true? Definitely. Absolutely, definitely. I agree with that. How difficult is it to spot someone with potential, especially within the police? Because you must have, even back then, a lot of new recruits, but some you might just think, mm, they're not going to cut the mustard. Well, when I come out of training school, or in fact, uh, you know, the, the training period, I'm not too sure if they're training schools anymore, but uh, they're on a probation for two years. And so so they're under, you know, kind of for the first few weeks, you're under the tutor or a mentor or whatever. So it's about watching how they think, watching how they approach things, watching how they communicate. They communicate with people. That's a huge skill, how you talk to people, 
whoever, because in the piece you have a broad range of people that you're going to talk to. You know, a huge reflection of society that you're going to talk to. It's how you talk to those people. It is all about communication, I think. And so you just kind of watch them. So they've got to, there's all sorts of things. You've got, you have to be curious to be a police officer. And if you don't show curiosity, if you don't kind of dig a little bit deeper when you're asking the questions and you don't rely on your uniform and all your kind of gear that they carry on, you know, that they wear, that, and also it's what I say about these WhatsApp groups that are kind of been brought into the focus of late, you know, terrible misogynistic, you know, that behaviour will leak out. It has to leak out somewhere and it will leak out. They've got those attitudes amongst themselves. That will leak out when dealing with the public. So you've really got to be on it. And as soon as you're on that, do something about it. As soon as you see it, you know, you've got to knock it on the head. And then whether you give them benefits of the doubt or not benefits of the doubt, but opportunity to rethink, you know, um, those decisions have to be made. But you've got to be curious and the supervisor's got to be curious and you know that what you're watching for is some huge confluence of kind of skills, characteristics that you're looking for. It's not just one thing, except the primary thing is communication. In my opinion, I'm not saying I'm right. <laughs> in my opinion, let's rewind just a little bit. So you swore in your police oath on your 19th birthday. Yeah, I've been a cadet before then, so I was, okay. yeah. yeah. So you so you swore that in officer number PW8. I wondered what what does yeah. that what does that stand for? Police woman eight. Police okay. woman eight. Because they're in a different department hierarchy yeah. departments. I mean, another hierarchy in a different department away from the men. This was before Sexual Discrimination Act. Mm -hmm. So they were in a different building, had their own kind of rank structure, and you assisted the men in their investigations. How did you feel about that? Because it must be a bit of a gut punch to think, I want to become a police officer, but because of my gender, I'm in a different building. My job is more of an assistant role. And, and dealing with cases to do with children and, and sexual abuse and stuff. I mean, I've often thought about it, Stuart. I mean, they did a cracking job. Those women were phenomenal in the skills, their knowledge, etc. They did a really, really, really good job. And their knowledge of women who was doing what families was outstanding. So you kind of learn to follow them a little bit. Now, I did have this massive kind of itched across the road now there were other days that you would be given a beat to have you know to police on your own mm -hmm. and then I always used to have an area called the high fields which wasn't far away from the police station and that was such that was a rich diverse area uh, it was an area where where the sex workers uh, operated from we used to they were called prostitutes then but the sex workers and they would have parties, there'd be parties. There was a huge West Indian community then in those days, as we called, called it. And it was exciting. And so, and I would kind of police that and talk to people, get to know people. And somehow or another, I was lucky enough to uh, get quite a bit of information. I was quite good at stopping cars uh, with drugs in the back. I don't know, I just... 
you know, as eagle-eyed, I suppose. And one of the things was always looking outwards, you know, not inwards. And then you talk to people and have cups of tea, chat, 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 chat. And do you know what? People would always tell you something inadvertently. Yeah. Often inadvertently. But then you go back and join the dots. It's good. It was really good. So anyway, I got noticed that I got noticed that way because I had some good crime arrests. Okay. So I did get noticed. Yeah. One thing that really shocked me was the gear that you were given as a police woman, as it was known back yeah. then, rather than being handed yeah. a truncheon like the men you were given a handbag. Yeah, handbag, yeah. I've got my friends actually who died. When the women got truncheons, yours truncheon was like, you know, 12 inches, you know, little, little thing. Mm. It wasn't even 12 inches. Well, it probably was 12 inches, little thing. Yeah, so you just had your handbag and you put your notebook in there and God knows what else, but it wasn't very big. And then the men in their uniform would have a huge, long, kind of a, a pocket that was a truncheon pocket. And the truncheon pocket would go, you know, to their knees because that was the length of the truncheon. And they would slip this truncheon into their pocket. We had nothing. It's very bizarre. Well, I think they thought that probably, you know, we wouldn't be on the front line needing a, needing a truncheon. Mm. We wouldn't need one. So... I don't know kind of what their thinking was. And, and, and as I say, when we got them, we got this little one to fit in the handbag. No, you couldn't. But so that when was it that stuff like that changed? Was it around the mid seventies? They started bringing 75, in 75, yeah. 75, sexual discrimination. Yeah. So what changes did you see right away when the act was brought in? Well, in fairness to the chief constable, they started a pilot scheme in 74 because they're anticipating it. So they did actually do a pilot It's in Leicestershire, scheme. is it? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like do a dry run with a pilot scheme of some women operating with the men and stuff like that. And they also brought in uh, women on traffic. So I was one of those officers selected to go uh, on drive this triumph dolomite car this kind of 1500 engine for city center patrol really and it was such a fast car i tell you so there were four female officers i was one of them made up of two crews to 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 use this car around the city center so that was quite a step forward compared to many many other forces because he the chief constable had anticipated equality so we had that there were women on the be patrolling with the men, you know, would parade with the men in the morning and whatever shift it was. That was another way of doing it. There were women in the CID, so they were already in the CID by then. And there were some women, by the time the act came in, who didn't want to or, or enjoyed the role that they were doing within the separate, what was called the separate policewomen's department. So they quite enjoyed that. And that got renamed to Special Inquiry Unit, SEU, I think it was, Special Inquiry Unit. And some of the women stayed in there. And by then I'd passed my sergeant's exam, so I was a sergeant by the time the act came out. So I was kind of fully integrated. Well, actually, that's not right. That's not right. I am... Um, I was the sergeant in, in charge of these these kind of old policemen's departments dotted around uh, Leicestershire. And then 
uh, when the act came out, I went as a detective sergeant in the CID. Yeah. So they, they were ahead of the game. You see, I always find it really more interesting to be a detective because you're on the, an inquiry and it's protracted and you get to know people. And, you know, turning up at an incident in the blues and twos and dealing with that incident, let's say as a response officer, that doesn't interest me at all because you haven't particularly engaged only in a volatile way. You know, these incidents that occur, you're trying to sort it out, you're nicked, you're nicked, or whatever. Mm. And then you, you that kind of um, policing is some people love it, absolutely love it. They love that high-end energy, charged, you know, response, and adrenaline pumping and then they deal with the person and then they never see them again well that yeah. that no more interested me than flying the air <laughs> so and the reason that was i i'm much more psychologically based so i'm much more interested in them as a human being what makes them tick to get underneath that behavior that was my where my interest uh, was that's nothing to do with them it's nothing to do with i'm not criticizing the choices of response officers by the way that's their choice yeah, you know and, and they would want to be a detective and we all find you know our ministries people wanted to be traffic they wanted to be dog handlers they wanted to be scenes of crimes officers when they were police officers so it's horses for courses do you remember your first major case as a detective you see again leicestershire was uh, again slightly ahead of the game in that respect because I had nine months service in that's you know bearing in mind you're on probation for two years to see whether you're going to make it and I went on a drug squad with nine months service and that was a result of the arrest I had you know I was making a name for myself and lots of the cars that I stopped in the high fields and lots of the information I got was related to drugs so Anyway, I put my. They asked for women to go in the drug squad, and I put my name in, and I got it. I only had nine months service, which was absolutely unheard of. So I was thrown in the deep end. Now the drug cases that you get in, um, bearing in mind that the Misuse of Drugs Act didn't come out until 1973, so it was before then. You know, drugs was very not as nothing like as major as it is today. Nothing like it. So you would get. You could do raids, and they were mainly LSD and cannabis stuff, and you would recover drugs. But it would be the quantities would be peanuts mm. compared to life today, with the millions of pounds worth of cocaine or heroin that is produced and everything. It was just right at the very beginning, because bear in mind the act didn't come out till '73 when government realised there's going to be a bit of a problem with drugs, especially cannabis. So, yeah, I was lucky. I was really, really lucky to be on the drug squad at that young age. And, you know, I was only, I might not have been 20 years old, 20 years of age by then. So, not doing yourself a bit of a disservice to say that you were lucky rather than you felt you've, despite your age, you must have done something, right? <laughs> My mum always used to say to me, you know, as a kid, I would talk to everyone. And, you know, I can't tell you. I have been told this hundreds of times by people and they say, and people um, tend to tell me stuff 
and that's happened all my life. <laughs> and people would say, I've just told you something that I never ever told anyone else before. Or I've ended up telling you about my life, Jackie. I don't know how that works, but I've had that message from many, many, many people over the years. You have a knack of somehow getting them to open up and kind of say things. It must be about um, what I know that I am in the words of uh, what people say about personality traits. I know that I'm an empath. Right. I have a natural empathy. And I think people pick up on that. You sort of briefly touched earlier upon your sexuality. I did. So as an openly gay woman, at what point did it become that you were comfortable to become to that level is my first question, I suppose, to become comfortably open. And secondly, in the 70s and 80s especially, what was the discrimination like that you experienced? Well, I didn't come out uh, in Leicestershire because it was you know such a small force and blah 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 and and when you come to London there is a point of anonymity about it because it is so big and the police force is massive in the Met compared to provincial forces it's you know some areas of London are bigger than some provincial forces if you get my drift anyway to answer your question, so it would be when I when I kind of came to London and then people say and and yeah, came to London and and kind of decided, well, people say, What did you do for the weekend? And then you have to kind of say, Oh, we they, you know, whatever. You can never say that sets of what you've done at the weekend because they'll be on it, you know, like police mm. are on it, you that on you all the time. And then they're very nosy, inquisitive, asking, you know, questions and stuff. And so, you know, I, I remember my friend telling me that she was on a crime squad and uh, a particular crime squad. And they suspected that she was, um, her colleagues suspected that she was gay. So they knocked on the door at two in the morning and ran into the house to see who she was sleeping with. Wow. And, Yeah. And to find out the truth, it's almost like this obligation to find out what they were, you know, dealing with. And the stories that you hear are quite phenomenal. So you either make a decision to go with it and say, well, actually, that's who I am. You know, I don't really care what you think. But the thing was that because I, I was a product of the, you know, 50s and 60s and stuff, there's a huge amount of shame about sexuality that was pronounced, I felt pronounced, and not part of and all of that. So I felt all of that shame. And I know a lot of my friends, women friends, felt that shame. And, you know, you often along the way have met women who married and had children, but always knowing that they were gay. Uh, but they just couldn't go with the difference that society uh, viewed gay people as and it was it was shaming to be gay that's the best way that I can describe it do you think that stigma's lifted in modern times yes I think it has I think it has I mean people are coming out and it's, you know it's just a different world with sexuality today with you know gay people and, and some people still find it you know difficult 
and that's down to what they feel about themselves, I suppose, like I did about me and feeling ashamed of it. Because we all want to be part of something. We all want to belong, don't we? Mm-hmm. We don't want to stand out like a sore thumb, like those kids who couldn't play football and they stood out. And that's why I embraced them at the time, you know, the ones who weren't any good at sport. Because I, I think that I knew there was something different about me years and years before but you're only a kid, so you don't know what it is. You don't know about sexuality. But I, I could identify with someone feeling squeamish and just full of shame. If you don't pick them for the team, they're going to die on the spot. Yeah. And I think I had that in me. It's a good trait to have. It's probably part of the empath personality trait. So let's talk about your career in the Met then and your journey to becoming Detective Chief Inspector. I mean, it's two a penny. There's two, they're two a penny now. <laughs> Women physios are two a penny. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was kind of, there were three back then. So, yeah, the difference is huge now. What was the actual journey like becoming that? Because I understand there's a few different ranks and stuff that you have to, do you have to spend so much time in a certain rank before you can progress? Yeah, you do. You do. Well, I came down to the Met as a sergeant because I was a sergeant in um, Leicestershire, so that was good. So they let me retain the rank. So that was a plus because they could have said, well, actually, you've got to revert. But I was qualified to inspector in the provincial force. I wouldn't accept that examination. So they, I had took the inspectors exam in the Met again because it's about different policies and procedures, etc. So I did that. So I was in a uniform for a bit and then I got back into the CID and I hadn't been long in the CID, three months. And the reason they sent me was because I was kind of the newest person. So I was um, on like a division uh, in Tooting uh, in a station called Ellsworth. that was part of Tooting in southwest London. So then they said go across to southeast London because there's been a fire in 13 young teenagers and some a couple of adults had died in a fire and they thought it was a racist attack and that was the famous new cross fire so i went over to there and was on a team investigating the new cross fire as a detective sergeant and then there was lots of problems on that investigation in the sense that you know getting the community to talk to you getting people to tell you that, that they were the party uh there were problems about all sorts of things which are too long to go into but they're explained in the book mm. so then i went there was the brixton riots came shortly after that in april and i was seconded to the crime investigation of the brixton riots which was about looking at the criminal aspects as a result of the arsons the burglaries the robberies the thefts that had occurred during the Brixton riots, so I did that. And then a little boy went missing, Bisham Mahotra, from um, Royal Wedding Day back in the southwest London at Putney. So I got seconded back onto that. And then my commander, Graham Stockwell, who was on the New Cross fire, he, he then got moved onto Commander Flying Squad. And, and he took me with him, basically. And I got seconded for three years on the Flying Squad. And, Southeast London as the only woman on my team which dealt with armed robbers. So what we used to do was that we used to get information about um, an armed robbery, which we would call a blag, you know, blag 
the, the robbers were called blaggers. And then, so you get, this is how it works. So you get information about an armed robber. Curical would be coming one way to deliver. You were doing observation surveillance on an armed robbery team and you would nick them for conspiracy to rob. And what that meant was there was a defining moment. You got them too quickly, all you'd get them for was possession of a sawn off shotgun in a bag or something. So you had to get the close proximity to the, and you couldn't obviously let the robbery take place because you knew about it. And if shots were fired or whatever, people were killed, then we'd be in real trouble because we knew about the robbery. So, you know, one way of dealing with an armed robbery is to put a police car outside, but it's not gonna, you're not gonna nick the robbers, are you? So so we would go what's called a terminology would the governor would find a particular point of the timing and he would just shout, go, go, go. And you got out your car and you ran, you ran towards the blaggers shouting, please, please, aren't please, scream, you know, and all of that type of thing. And you'd get them. And often they would wet themselves, the robbers, because they were just scared of whatever. And it would be a very loud kind of few minutes of confrontation. That's what being on the flying squad was like. And you felt like Superman. The adrenaline that that you got was like Superman. And everything was like in slow motion. So, right, for example, I maybe spotted the guy that I wanted and then you'd go out the car and it was all like in slow motion. It's very hard to describe, but you felt like Superman. And the guys were very protective of me, to be fair. To be fair, they were very protective. But I, again, you know, I wanted to be in the mix and stuff. So I used to say to them, oh, don't worry about me, you look after yourselves, I'll be fine. But they were kind of quite gentle, really. I remember them shouting, my nickname was The Tart. And I remember in the scuffle, somebody was shouting, where's The Tart, where's The Tart, where's The Tart? I said, no, I'm here, I'm here, I'm all right. And they kind of, you know, it was being protective. They were very protective of me. But, you know, that, that uh, was quite... Uh, what's the word it was a hard job it was but it was very very exciting and bearing in mind you know that's the icing on the cake you might have been watching them for two months because our bluggers are quite sensitive so they might turn up on again forgive the terminology but this is what they were called on the plot they turn up on the plot they might see a black cat they might be spooked and then they clear off you know you never kind of and then they'd come back the next week uh, and funny now I'm in prison, we're helping prisoners, you know, I meet a few blaggers and I listen to it from their points of view, which is quite interesting from their point of view. So it was very, very exciting, but it was tough. And I had a terrible partner the first few months, horrible man. But he wasn't horrible, actually. I'll take that back. He was just horrible to me, but he wasn't horrible. And I understood, I learned to understand that he was full of fear, really. And I think he was full of low self-worth and he thought that he got the raw deal by having me. And I think it, because he had a woman partner, I think that reflected on his self-esteem for some reason that he was less than or whatever to get this woman. And he would just bully, bully, bully. So eventually I went to my governor. I said, I can't deal with this man. I just, I can't. He's just terrible to work with. I felt like an abused wife to be honest. And um, anyway, so I got given another one and it was fine after that. At what point were you approached? Was it Linda LaPlante that approached you regarding prime suspect? Oh, yeah, yeah. But you've got to, I was a detective sergeant then, so you've got to go fast forward 
many, many a few years now. So uh, I was uh, Fly Squad 81 to 84, then another seven years later, I'm a DCI and Linda Lepart. No, a, a guy, an ex-police officer that she had located saying she wanted to write this thing. And um, he said, well, he, he says, there's only three female DCIs. He happened to know me. He happened to know me. And he said, you better talk to Jack. You need to talk to Jack. So I'm, I'm quite open in many, many ways. So I didn't have, you do and you don't. You are, you are loyal to the police, but you're also about yourself. So it's gauging it, what you can tell a writer and what you can't tell a writer, obviously. I used to talk to Linda for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And that story evolved, or the character evolved. She'd got the the story; she just hadn't got the police procedure. Yeah. Why would she? And she hadn't really got the characters quite right. Because and so, what I did was I spoke to her for weeks and weeks, and then I facilitated her to do research at the police station at the murder squad at forensic science. A forensic science laboratory. I facilitated a meeting of pathologists, post mortem, everything, so that she could see with her own eyes, and also facilitating talking to other police officers as well, uh, and male officers to develop those characters, the male characters, because the majority of the characters that she had were male, so she needed to speak and and get a feel of male detectives as well. Did you speak to Helen Mirren at all? Yeah, of course, yeah. What was she like? Uh, well, she was, um, Helen Mirren is quite cool. She's quite a cool, when I say cool, she's, I once have described her as warm. And uh, so I went out with her for dinner at Linda's house and she was concentrating on the research. And then I went out for dinner on my own and then facilitated again other aspects of research with her for her to go and speak to other people type of thing. And, yeah, I think she's such a professional and she brings her skills and her magic to it. And I don't think they could have cast anyone better, you know, than Helen Mirren to do that character of Tennyson. I couldn't have thought of a better actress to have done it. And she was magnificent. But, you see, my, my relationship was with Linda you know, that by then I'd known her months. And by then, all the Granada team that produced Prime Suspects, you know, the females, the power behind, you know, this programme were all women. So the head of Granada drama was a woman. And her assistant was a woman. The script editor was a woman. They were, it was an all-women team, Helen Mirren, me, Linda LaPlante. And then they brought in uh, a male director who was lovely, Chris Manor. And they brought in a, a male producer, a guy called Don Lever, both absolute gentlemen, absolute gentlemen. They were lovely. But right, you know, in the development of the script and the characters, it was an all-female team, which was very unusual for me to be in an all-female team. Do you think your experience working with Linda for that show, again, we're jumping the gun a little bit because we'll leave some of the history of your career to the book for my listeners. But yeah, sure. Do you think that helped? when you became a, a consultant on stuff like The Bill and, and crime dramas? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, Linda LaPlante said to me one day, you know what a drama needs, Jackie. You have that natural ability to know what a drama needs. I didn't really quite understand what she meant by that. But what <laughs> I'm saying is that I knew that intuitively that the drama had to come first. 
So what I would say to her, you know, in, in a police procedure, well, I said, look, you can't do that. But then I give her an option. Have you thought about this, this and this? Would this suit you type of thing? Because she's the writer. You don't, you know, you go with the writer, you go with the flow. And you would give her a number of options. And she'd say, oh, yeah, 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 that's much better. But then it would make it more procedurally right and authentic. But she hasn't lost the drama because the drama will will always come first. It has to. And that's the skill. You no good being a police procedure and say, well, that wouldn't happen. No, that doesn't work. Or that's a load of old twaddle. You have to then say, look, it doesn't work quite like that. This is the reason it doesn't work like this. Again, explaining it. You know, and then they respect your explanation they ex- and they respect the process. And then you say, but what about this? And that's the way I've always worked. And I leave it to her, you know, to make that decision. And, and she always took that on board because she could see that it would work and you don't lose the authenticity of it and you don't lose the integrity of the story. Do you think they get it right more often than not in crime dramas or are there a few that focus more on the the TV drama side than the procedural side? Yeah, well, you see, you know, if you're watching Capture, are you watching Capture at the minute? No, Are no. you watching Capture? Well, that's about, uh, it's phenomenal. It's a thriller. It is phenomenal. So the police procedural bit, you know, would be hugely ridiculous, but it's the drama of it is phenomenal. It's a really gripping stuff, and I love it. But the drama... The thrill of it all surpasses, you don't need all that police procedure stuff in any event. If you watch Line of Duty, they have police, they do have police advisors on it, you know, who do their utmost to kind of keep it right as well. But nevertheless, there's some things in there which are pure ridiculous. And but the drama deserves it. You 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 just kind of say, Well, that's brilliant. I get I get where you're coming from. The bodyguard, again, all these kind of dramas where it's gripping, it's very, very gripping. And you think, does the police procedure, do you really need it? No, you don't. And let it go. But when you're investigating a murder, for example, as Prime Suspect was about, you have to have that procedural. So it's horses for courses. Happy Valley, a great programme. Really, really good programme. Unforgotten. That's a phenomenal programme. And what's that other one? The Bay, is it? Another police procedure one, The Bay, Mm. I think it is. They're Mm. really good ones. And where they're not police procedure driven, like capture or line of duty, I kind of think, well, it doesn't matter because I'm gripped and the whole nation was gripped on line of duty. Yeah, absolutely. The whole nation was gripped. It was brilliant. And then you went on to host the real prime suspect, that's right, isn't it? Which which was true crime rather than crime drama. Yeah. How many seasons has that have there been? Two. Two. Two seasons. Do you enjoy working on that or do you prefer the behind the scenes stuff? Oh, no, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I tell you why I loved this year. I was back in the seat. I was back in the DCI, you know, going and revisiting and speaking to the police officers that had investigated this. So my kind of did my research. I spent days researching each of those cases. So I knew as much as I possibly could about them. That was out of respect of the police officers who had investigated those particular murders. You know, because you get interviewed so many times, it's quite obvious who has done their research and who hasn't. You know, like, you know, on podcasts or interviewed by people, you just know, you just know who's done the work and who hasn't. I wasn't going to be one of those people, so I knew I had to prepare myself and I knew those cases inside out as much as I possibly could. So nothing they told me was a surprise. 
Now that was out of respect for them and the knowledge that you know between well they had they had makes the program and the fact that they'd never had an, a cop on TV in or an ex cop interviewing ex cops and that's everybody does it now. Mm. <laughs> they wanted the, want the concept, but you know again that was the first one to do it. I'm really proud of it. Trendsetter, I like it. Trendsetter at my yeah. age, still a trendsetter. <laughs> That's uh, what I quite like doing, trendsetting. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you start to think about releasing basically a, a tell-all book, which is what your new book is, also called The Real Prime Suspect? Yeah, yeah. CBS kind of gave me the permission to lose, use the title. So, well, I think it was a point of I've got less years in front of me than behind me that was one uh, reason I wanted it to be in the kind of history of policing I didn't I had a story to tell and I've been asked many times to do a story a book and I said no but I felt at this point that I had enough weight within me that I had enough experience that I knew what I wanted to say and had the kind of um, confidence to say it and yeah, so it's just about the timing and also it's about the ghostwriter. It's about the particular person that you're doing it with. And I was lucky enough to have a brilliant uh, lady called Helene Mulholland to do that with. And she prodded and poked me and pushed me and all of those types of things. I, I work better in a team, so I, I, I bounce off people much easier than just going off in my own head somewhere. So she was great and pushed me uh, to out my comfort zone sometimes. And I never thought of giving it up, never once thought I'm going to pack all this in. I just felt, no, I've got a story to tell. And it's not just about policing. It's a mixture of the TV and prime suspects and my addiction, recovery, going into the prisons that I'm just about to go off to run my group uh, after I finish talking to you. So all of that is what made the book, I think, the right timing for me to do. Was it easy enough to get picked up? Publisher-wise? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have an agent, and you have an agent, a literary agent, Yeah. and they push it out to publishers, and we got snapped up straight away. And, yeah, they fight for you a little bit. (laughs) I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Well, it is a good book. I've been reading it. I'm really enjoying it so far. Yeah, it's good. I do have a couple of listener questions you might have seen on Twitter the other day. Uh, and on Instagram as well, I put a question out to my listeners. I'm speaking, oh, to, yeah. speaking to Jack Ids and I want to ask Jackie a question. I saw the question. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see what they said. So I got a couple back. Now, the first one is from Gemma on Instagram, who wants to know, and a couple of these questions are about when you were one of the three uh, detective chief inspectors. So Gemma wants to know any difficulties or challenges you received from your male colleagues in that circumstance. It could be people perhaps that reported to you or that you reported to um no I didn't actually you see the difference is by that time you have got so much under your belt that they know that in the main you've been a career detective in the main that you've been flying squad you've been at West End Central you've had been on major investigations so they'll find out all about you and what they will do, what happened, and I think it happens to whether you're a man or a woman, when you first go to posting, people will push your comfort zone in as much as they'll test you about your boundaries, your boundaries. Yeah. And what quickly happens is that they, you know, I'm saying this because I, I, you know, I know this to be true. <laughs> they test your boundaries. 
Now, because I'd been there and done it, they couldn't have me over, but they will try and have you over. Mm. And because I've been there, you say you call them in and say, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> this is not happening. And this is the reason it's not happening. And I was, um, I had the reputation of being very tough. I was a tough governor to have, but I was very fair. And uh, I got a message from some of my crime squad boys at Hammersmith the other day, and he sent a picture because they were on the reunion, and he said, you were so loved by your boys at Hammersmith. So, you know, that's really, really nice. I've had so many phenomenal messages since this book comes out from police colleagues and people that I used to manage and stuff, and it's just warms your heart, to be perfectly honest. So they test your boundaries, and but that's the human condition, I think, whether mm-hmm. you're a male or a female boss. And I had a really, really good CV behind me, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. you can't faff about with somebody who's been on the flying squad because they've been there and done it, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. Um, a similar question from Brian on Instagram. Just wants to know, I guess, how you felt being at that level. Sense of pride or did you feel I've made it? Well, I hadn't made it because I wanted to be superintendent. And that's and that kind of <laughs> bloody pesky maths that failed me twice. I got top marks in every aspect oh, no. of my site. Yeah, except the maths. So when you get to it in the book, I'll read it. You'll read it. The maths failed me twice to be superintendent. Oh, God. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to go higher. I definitely wanted to go higher. But um, I was proud of being a DCI. Definitely, definitely proud of being a DCI. I was proud of being a detective in the Met Police, always proud of that. And I think it's about how you present yourself to the public as well. You know, in my day, we all kind of dressed. I mean, I, uh, there's a picture sent to me yesterday of a uniformed officer. I can't believe it. He's turned up an incident. He's got a beard right down, massive long beard, and he's got a Mohican hairstyle. Mohican hairstyle, uniformed officer. Yeah. He wouldn't ask, I'm going to have him five minutes. <laughs> not that he'd be in my department anyway, but if he turned up as a detective like that, I said, you get home, mate. You're not coming to work like that. You've yeah. got to, you, you, when I turn up at your house as a detective or a police officer, I want you to look at me and, and think, even by my appearance, even though, so, we, so we, I spent a lot of money on a detective's coat, a coat. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, I might spend 500 quid on a coat that looked the part. Of being a detective, my suits, I'd pay money to look the part. And even, you know, because it's important that you turn up looking professional to somebody's house, yeah, you know, to investigate something. And you don't turn up looking like a bag of shit. And you don't turn up with a Mohican hairstyle. So how would he put his hat on? How would this man put his hat on? <laughs> anyway, going back and digressing, but. Going back to uh, a couple of uh, the chief constable of um, Greater Manchester, Steve Watson, said, back to basics, the new deputy commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Lynn Owen, back to basics. It's how you present yourself. And it is all about, you know, pride in your appearance and pride in your, you know, being a police officer and and respecting the uniform of the Queen, God's sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm gay myself, but I'm not into all this dancing up and down the street kind of thing. You know, I'm just not in police officers proposing to each other on one knee in full uniform. That is not my style. Being gay is part of you. It doesn't define you, if you see what I mean. I get you totally. 
And final question then, Jackie, comes from Will, again on Instagram, who just wants to know, is there a crime that you've investigated that sticks in your mind more than any others? No, I've got hundreds. There's loads of crimes that I've investigated, and they're all, you know, really, really interesting for their... It's hard to explain, but you can't say that investigated the crime, you know, that is more interesting than than other people. So, you know, I've done, you know, kind of major fraud inquiries and blackmail inquiries, you know, rape inquiries. We've been on murder cases. The sad things I remember are in the book about not uh, about the Deptford fire, the New Cross fire and the Shamahocha, which are undetected. We didn't have CCTV. We didn't have. The DNA. We didn't have social media. We didn't have mobile phone footage and all of mobile phone, social media, all of that kind of stuff. It was pure slog. So the ones that I didn't detect are the ones that I carry with me. If that okay. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question, Will. But yeah, you know, it is about dealing with the human condition as well, and that's the most fascinating thing about being a police officer is how is dealing with the human conditions because it's right across the board how people responds the complexities of people's family set up the dynamics all of that is quite phenomenal and you have to enter somebody's life often through trauma and sadness and tragedy and you have to kind of work out the dynamic especially in a kind of a domestic murder or family murder the dynamics of that family of how mm. they operate you know that all of those things are a real privilege yeah, all I'll say, Will, is the real prime suspect is available now. <laughs> you can read Jackie's uh, memoir on there. <laughs> and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link to the book in the episode description. And what I might do is I might just give this away as a competition prize. Oh, that's good. At some point. So that might uh, be on offer for you there, Will, or anyone else that's listening. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, Jackie. Like I said, I didn't want to give away too many of your secrets because the book is just such a good insight not only into your career but experiences of a time that a lot of us think is in the past but there's still remnants of that in today's society so i think from a historical point of view as well as from a procedural point of view it's a really really good read so and i appreciate of course you've given up your time to speak no, to it's me a pleasure. you've been a really good interviewer as well to give you a oh, bit thank of you feedback. Oh, um, thank you. No, you really have because you ask interesting questions. It's and I know you've done your research. And there you have it. That was my interview with Jackie Moulton. This outro is being recorded a couple of weeks before this episode has been released. Now we recorded this even further back. A couple of things I noticed just while editing. She mentioned wearing the Queen's uniform. The Queen has obviously now passed away. She, in fact, I also mentioned that there was a competition to give away Jackie's book. That occurred last week when I'm recording this right now, a few weeks ago. So that's already happened. So you, you can't win that book anymore. Uh, that's already gone to someone. I think it went to Catrice Ward from memory. But if you do want to pick up a copy of the book, I will link it in the episode description. So make sure you check it out. It's definitely worth a read. I appreciate you guys listening. There will be another episode coming on Thursday, so until then, as we always say, cheerio!